free data is really expensive because if you're making a decision using it and it's not properly processed, you can make the wrong decision. That's the problem. Well, whether you're working for an insurance company, looking for new solutions, dreaming of your next startup, or just looking for inspiration, and of course, always wanting a bit of entertainment in there, I know you are going to love this interview with Mark Cunningham. So thank you for plugging us in, or however you're listening to us. Matthew Grant here, partner at Instec London. Well, we're surrounded by data these days, but with so much choice, how do you tell what is good and what is just distracting noise? Well, Mark and his co-finder set up Wenfresh as a digital supermarket, more on that later, to provide a curated choice of data for insurers and property lenders that want to really get into the details and learn more about the properties in their portfolio and their potential new customers. Now, we cover a lot in this one, including how Wenfresh validates the quality of the data, the impact of COVID-19 and the challenges, but also opportunities that has brought over the last few months. And there's a great section on here on Mark's tips and advice for others looking to start businesses. And finally, if you want to find out how the company got its name, then do hang in there after my closing remarks for a bonus section on that. But before I pick up my discussion with Mark, a thanks again to all the great comments I've been getting from you about the podcast. It really makes it worthwhile. We hit a couple of new records for listeners last month. And whilst we're fortunate having support from our corporate members to allow us to do this, we are also now looking for sponsors for the podcast. So if you're interested, please do drop us a line, hello at instec.london or just contact me via LinkedIn. Now, here's Mark. Mark, it's great to be talking to you. We've had you on stage, oh gosh, in those crazy worlds when we lived dangerously and actually sat next to people and talked. <laughs> So really looking forward to hearing a bit more about Wenfresh. We've got uh, you know, some time to go really deep into this. Now, looking at your bio, you founded your first company in 2006. Uh, you then sold it in 2011. You then developed a music search library, which sounds really intriguing. And then in 2012, you set up Wenfresh, uh, which you've referred to as a data supermarket. And uh, according to your LinkedIn profile, when I last looked, you had 71 data contributors on the shelves in your supermarket with real-time data fields. So yeah, really delighted to have you joining us. You're very welcome. Yeah, really looking forward to it. Now, given that sort of varied career, and I'm sure it was very fascinating being in the music world, um, how did you end up in insurance? And I know insurance is not your only market, but you know, what was it that sort of encouraged you to set up a company and this business back in 2012? We took the data warehousing and data search capability that was inside of the music search business and said, okay, how, how else would you apply it? My co-founder, Alan Dean, had come from an insurance technology background. Alan was with Swift Cover and he had been at Microsoft and he'd been at Tesco.com and they were big users of data in, in incredibly fast delivery vectors and incredibly fast computational outcomes. So we said, well, you know, is there anybody doing that kind of data rendering as we can see it in the insurance market? The answer was, we, we don't think so. I probably would have done more MVP work with insurers before we'd got to where we are now. Having said that, we have some incredibly smart customers who are really opening up to the idea of how to use data to get pricing in real time. And that's that's been vastly encouraging. I mean, this last year has been a sea change in how people use information. 
to make distanced decisions. Remember the, as you said back in the old days when we used to go and meet people for real? Now that you can't really do that, then you need to go looking for data because you can't be there. So you need to know what is the thing we're trying to ensure. And then that's just open stuff up for us. So this concept of the data supermarket, I can sort of get some conceptually, that makes complete sense. But from a practical point of view, what are you offering with the data that is now available to insurance companies? It depends on the insurance company. So what typically would happen was the company in question would say, uh, for us, it's really important with our pricing team that we know these three things uh, or these four things. And uh, either we have it in the shop or we go and put it in the shop for them. And that could be, I don't know, proximity to water, previous flood event, uh, height of a building, wind speed against the building. I, I don't know. It depends on the insurer. They all have different ratings about how they do a thing. But what they want to know is, A, is the, is the data right? And B, is it available quickly? Good. So you've got the data. And then what about the way you provide it? Because there's lots of raw data out there, but in most cases, there needs to be some mm. kind of analysis done. Who does that analysis? Is that your partners? Well, you have me in house. So Ken Clemmer was head of data at Zoopla. Alan came from Tesco and Microsoft. And so we dig deep into how is, what is it right and is it useful? And then it goes to a character called Seb Lambda. And Seb joined us from, uh, he was compare the market. He was head of their API development. So you have three really expert checkers, if you will. Think of it as a restaurant. They're the chefs looking at the pass, checking if the food's right when it goes through. But remember, each of the data items comes from the providers. So the providers are the best people in their wheelhouse, whether we're looking at satellite imagery out of University of Liverpool or we're picking up uh, Cranfield University work or we're picking up from uh, European Space Agency. So it's, you go to a place that is, is the place that knows the right answer to a question. What is that soil? Okay, cool. I need to go and find the people who know the right answer to what's that soil and then put it on the shelves so people can buy it. I love that cooking analogy. It really, really brings it to life. Could you just talk a little bit about, about the data? There's so much free data out there available. Are you just working with companies that are providing you know, paid for data or are you also able to add value to some of the free sources with your team in the kitchen? Free data is really expensive um, because if you're making a decision using it and it's not properly processed, you can make the wrong decision. What we're looking for is, is it provenanced right? Can I legitimately use the thing? And have I mapped it correctly so that when I'm trying to bind an ingredient and another ingredient together, so the, the free thing to an address or a location or a map reference, that's tricky. Getting it right is tricky. You get free stuff and you use it incorrectly, you'll be in real trouble. That's so true. I mean, there are actually a lot of examples out there yes, in weather derivatives, for example, people have been using free temperature data and not realized that somebody moved the thermometer and it, the whole thing was actually completely useless. So that's a, it's a real sort of important value add. And then you mentioned Zoopla in passing, or you mentioned one of your team that's come from Zoopla. But when we spoke before, you'd mentioned you'd done something quite clever with Zoopla and in the partnership of using or taking their data. Can you just talk a little bit about what that is and what you're now providing? They're a key strategic partner of ours, and we've been working with them for quite some time. What we do is extract key value elements in the descriptions of properties. Um, there are, think of it in, as two, two particularly useful outcomes. One is where a, an agent very accurately describes something, and one is where an agent very accurately describes something that hasn't been described before. So knowing that there's a conversion in the loft or knowing that there's a basement or knowing that there's a side return that either you know, doesn't, hasn't already appeared on planning data or isn't visible in imagery data. 
great. Well, they've sent a human being in to have a look. Well, that data is really useful. One of the key points about a listing that's in, in insurance space is what, what do I know? I, I know that a human's been, I know that pictures have been taken and I know a human wrote down a description. That's really useful in the insurance space. And for those that yeah, don't know Zipro, it's one of the property selling online portals, one of the major ones in the UK. But I mean, that point in there, which you alluded to, which is the change, I mean, that is one of the challenges, isn't it, with the data is that particularly with properties, people are making changes all the time, which can impact the value or impact some of the vulnerability. But so are you, you're basically getting information that allows your teams to update the data on individual properties on a fairly frequent basis. Yeah, uh, that's absolutely right. So think of them as being one very good source and planning data is another very good source and imagery data is another very good source. So you take all of these things in aggregate and you're building a patchwork together that goes, okay, I've got, now I've got a much better view of the things that are out in the general populace. Think of it as a quilt where you're putting together lots of different pieces of information from lots of different locations and they all have a vote. So if Zoopla says it's a four-bedroom house and a planning application says it's a four-bedroom house and a loan application says it's a four-bedroom house, it's a four-bedroom house. No, it's really a sort of probability-weighted... I mean, ultimately, there's no necessarily completely definitive truth. You will get different views, won't you? If the data's out of date or someone's miscoded it, and then you've just got to make a decision based on the different sources you have. Yeah, I, I'm sitting in a room which is designed as an office, but was formerly a bedroom. I had my house valued and uh, came back telling me that I had a three-bedroom house. I, I, I have a four-bedroom house. He went, no, no, it's only three of them have bedrooms in or have beds in. Uh, okay, so now we're describing something functionally. If it doesn't have a bed in, is it no longer a bedroom? And there's a lot of people in the UK working from home right now that seem to have just lost a bedroom. So, you know, you've got to be careful in how you interpret data. Uh, it doesn't have to have a bed in it to be a bedroom. Yeah, although we have, we have been working in lots of other people's bedrooms over the last few years. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I'll give you one example of this. We have been looking at, at um, the following. I, I use it as, a, as a, an indicator of when you know something is true. You can describe a bungalow that's an end of terrace as also being semi-detached uh, and also a bungalow. So, and if it's a mansard, it could technically be two-story bungalow, which is also end of terrace or semi-detached. They're all true. Which one's right? And it kind of depends who you are. So this ingredient set, if we go back to my kitchen, we can use the eggs to make an omelet or we can use the eggs to make a souffle. Which one did you want? So that's the key in the, in the supermarket. I've got to know what does the insurer need and then you recode the data in accordance with their flavor. Just taking that analogy a step further, you also provide choice, don't you? So it's not as if you're saying, this is the when fresh view, take it or leave it. Absolutely right, 100% correct. The, the insurer drives the decisioning and it's important for them to know the source of the data. So provenance, recency, uh, let's take it back to the supermarket thing. You've got to be able to walk along the shelves and choose which brand of cornflake you want. Same, same with the data. You need to know, okay, which soil type data do you want? Our job is, what we're really doing, the essence of the business is delivery in a way that you can be confident. It, we should be the least exciting company you've ever come across because the thing you thought you wanted turns up exactly when you expected it to and it does exactly the thing we said it would do. We've got to be as dull as possible. It's maybe early stages yet, uh, in which case I take credit for the idea. But are you doing any crowdsourcing of opinions of which data people prefer? So rather like the Spotify model on Netflix, you know, if you like this, you'll like that. Really interesting. Um, the market is 
small enough so that I'm not sure we'd have the same, um, same uh, gravity traction in terms of uh, usage, but it's a very good point. I have a different way of looking at this. Two of our biggest customers are now giving us corrected data where they say, our customer has told us that X is true. Your model is out by something. And they give us the customer data back and say, can you recut the model that you're providing us with where we use them as an ingredient source? Now, that is, in effect, crowdsourcing by going to you know, a, a customer who's got 1.4, 1.5 million policies. They pass the policies to us and go, hey, those policies, they should in, help you infer what the truth is on, in data. So the, um, the crowdsourcing thing in terms of usage, not so, but the input set from live customers, definitely. It's a great idea. I guess there is a little bit of moral hazard, isn't there? Or, or there's some risk that people want to, for whatever reason, you know, change the way their property is defined or may not actually understand it. Therefore, once that goes back into the system, it's necessarily right. That's yeah. a good question. How do you avoid the moral hazard of somebody deliberately uh, recoding? When uh, Ken was at Zoopla, they ran a brilliant uh, claim your home application. And claim your home was where a person could input data and then it would give you information back. So I have a three bedroom, two bathroom house and it's in good condition and it looks like the following, how much is it worth? Of course, it's a massive input of data. And just like you see the moral hazard in car quotes when people say, oh, I park it in the garage or I park it on the driver or I park it on the street and you, you see the price change. You get an interaction with a customer who's telling you things in order to see what the change in your opinion about mm. their, their home is. So if the customer is putting in data which is knowingly incorrect, of course you have multiple sources that go, really, that they say they live in a cottage? Because I can see a picture of the thing and it's a block of flats. Um, and, and not only do I think it's a block of flats, but so do Barclays and Barclays lent the mortgage to the guy. So it's a block of flats. You, so you have checks and measures. What you're looking for is the subtle inflections where we, we talked about the end of terrace bungalow that's also semi-detached. The insurer usually wants to know its bungalowness more than they want to know its semi-detachedness. But knowing that it's an end of terrace is also very useful. So you might give me a description to say, hey, I live in a semi-detached house. And then they ping us and go, does he? We go, yeah, it is semi-detached, but it's kind of the end of the terrace too. Awesome, right? So one thing is affecting price and the other thing is delivering a good user experience. And you can do both without necessarily challenging the moral hazard. That point you made there about people changing some of the data, the, there is a company that I came across who are actually looking at tracking how many changes people make to their policy. And you, if you start to see people changing bedroom numbers or doing something else, there's some leading indicators there that they could actually be you know, trying to game the system or coming in with, with fraud. So I guess there's some other ways just inherently of being able to look at that. Um, and then just want to talk a bit about how, from an insurance perspective, how companies get access to the data because with legacy systems, it can be quite hard to, certainly in real time, connect to different sources of data. So, so how do you sort of work with organizations? There's some examples about how they're connecting into the WenFresh database. Yeah, some are using uh, API connections, some are using a combination of API and flat file, and some are using just flat files. But think of this, we go back to our supermarket analogy. It's more about the data being right than it being fast. What you want to know is that the ingredients are good. The delivery vector is just how it's easy for you to consume something. Um, there's a long integration 
I wish it were quicker, but the truth is it needs to be well considered and prudent when we're working with an insurer to go, what is the data that's going to tip the scales for you? So you are, you know, reducing your loss ratios, frankly, that's what you want the data for. So you know something first before you make a decision. Knowing it first doesn't always mean having to send it out by API. Sometimes it means having to give an insurer a file of stuff so they can run it locally. That's cool. That's not a problem. You just have to roll with whatever people used back in the day. And if an insurance company has a legacy system, then that's fine. We'll work around it. That's such a good point. It better to be correct than fast, particularly you know, things aren't changing. It's not like you're trying to monitor driving behavior in real time. Um, mm. you, need to, you, need to get up, you need to be updated, I guess, hence the whole point of the name when fresh. Mm. That doesn't mean it has to be there by the minute. And then on this validation one, you, you offer a, a kind of test access to your data via an API mm -hmm. to let people sort of try before they buy. So how, how does that work in practice? It's usually two stages. First, it's, it's um, do you know the data that you need before you need to try and draw it by API? So typically an insurer would say, I have, uh, I don't know, a thousand policies. Now I've got here are a thousand policies and I've suffered loss on some of them. Uh, can you append these thousand with all the stuff you know? And we do. We send it back. I, I picked a thousand as a number, although it can be way bigger sometimes. And then we'll work with their analysts or lend them an analyst to go, okay, what thing is common where you suffered loss? That's probably a one that you want to avoid going forward or price differently. Then you either provide a flat file of all of the places in the UK where that ingredient is true, or you provide access to the API and then they can test it on the sandbox to see in real time um, if they're taking quotes in on their normal system, they just do a parallel with us to go, well, let's run the quote through the API and see, does OneFresh think the thing we don't like is present in the candidate that's seeking insurance? If yes, okay, great, I probably want to avoid that one. Or you're the opposite end of the scale, hey, is the guy inquiring of us exactly who we want? Awesome, right, so we want more of those ones. And then we connect the API and off we go. And are you able to measure the conversion of people who test out your data and then the ones that ultimately come and license it from you? I would say extraordinarily high. Uh, the, the number of trialists who don't end up integrating is honestly, this year, I could say almost none. Coming back a little bit on this whole point about data and this specific way of getting information now, there's quite a big move to this sort of concept of pre-fill or you know, reducing the number of questions people ask when they take out insurance. How confident do you think people can be from an insurance perspective that the data that's going to come back is going to be accurate? We've touched on this a bit. Are you now really getting down to the level of individual building information as opposed to having to make sort of assumptions about certain types of property based on location or, or valuation or something else? I'll give you two indicators of where we're at. There is a, a new bank that is using a hookup to our API where they are no longer sending out any physical valuations or surveys. Now, the physical valuations by API is not new. There's been the Home Tracker, they're really market leader on that, and they're, they're extraordinarily good at what they do. But there isn't someone who does a virtual visit, if you will, that collects all the other data. So not valuation, but the questions around Japanese knotweed condition, plot size, restriction, anything like that. But we do, and working with our partner, uh, CLS, they're also a very, very, very data-savvy company. Between us, we've been able to merge the data sets that we have together to produce a, an insurance-wrapped data block so that lenders 
will now be able to say, I'd like to lend on one the high street. Can you tell me everything I need to know about it without sending somebody out with the welly boots to look in a hard hat to look at it? And will you insure your data for us? What that means in practical reality is that our customer, they're able to do loans in three hours and they mean it, not loan and approval. They could actually deposit the cash. They don't need to send out a valuer to look. They don't need to send out a surveyor to look. They can hit our combined APIs and go, there are, I think there's about 75 different fields that they're checking, but it's stuff like you know shape of roof, quality of number of windows, uh, layout, floor space, construction uh, methodology, presence of Japanese knotwood, pro uh, proximity to water, all the kind of stuff that you expect a, a valuer to check or a surveyor to check, all done, all wrapped up. And it, it's also the, the insurance wrap also covers the conveyancer, so the conveyancer doesn't need to run those as checks. So you're done already. You could go straight to lend. Yeah, that's a great example of a business that's been accelerated by COVID. So just to make sure I understand that correctly. So what you're offering is you're offering the data that people can use to do the valuation. The insurance part of that is there is an insurance product that is covering if that valuation was incorrect or, or I guess, and or there was a default on the mortgage and subsequently it proved incorrect. Have I, have I, have I understood that correctly? Right. There are, yeah, there are two, actually, there's two products. One is the one you're referring to, which is uh, called Verify, which is can you tell me the value of the thing or can you judge that the value of the thing is correct? And if we lend on it and we have to repossess the property, it turns out your val was wrong and we took a risk. We've got to pay out on the valuation. That's true. That product does exist. Early door customers of Verify said, look, we, we've got a real problem. It's not the valuation, it's the condition. We've been working with different valuation mechanics for quite some time and we work extremely closely with as i said with home tracker the market leaders in this to provide an insurance policy that sits behind evaluation that that's not the difficult bit the difficult bit was going i can no longer send out a a surveyor to look at a thing can you check the reports that the surveyor would look at and also insurance wrap that thing for me so the bank doesn't have to send out boots on the ground they can just process and go so think of them as two separate things. One is the value, one is the entity. If you think of your original question, which was how are we looking at the quality of data? The real question is, are you willing to risk a mortgage on the basis of the data, not, an not a household insurance policy? We're not talking about a you know, 120 pound policy here. We're talking about three, four, 500,000 pound loans. Mm. Are you sure you're sure? Because I'm about to lend 500,000 pounds on this thing. The answer is, yeah, not only are we sure we're sure, we're so sure we'll insure it. We'll use data to build insurance products for insurers if they want it. Yeah, it's a great example of where another adjacent market is learning from insurance and actually said, you know, the value at risk there is, is great, is even greater. And then you, you mentioned a couple of times knotweed. And so just as an example, mm -hmm. does that mean there's a, a database out there of knotweed? Uh, I'm quite sure how you describe a non-occurrence, <laughs> a cluster of knotweed or a, probably an inconvenience of knotweed. There are a number. The question is, how sure are you? Not, is it there? And if it were there and you had to remediate, what would be the cost? And is that insurable? So it's not really the question about is the thing true or not? It's if, it, if you were wrong, could you afford to fix it right? So that's what essentially what you're, you're insuring against because you're, you're absolutely correct. Uh, vegetative um, databases are at best questionable, but they need to be accurate enough so that when you work out your loss ratios against the potential claim that you're, on, you're in a good place. Yeah, and then presumably that opens up a whole new source of people gathering data, though, because I imagine you know, the people who are out there are going to treat 
not weed are you know, they know where it is and so if you could gather that data in the way you have elsewhere you've actually you know, you've, you've not quite crowdsourced but you've sourced it from the industry that deals with not weed you probably get a pretty good understanding of where the clusters are and then, mm-hmm. you can then Look, there are maps of it as it happens other things we've been looking at which are really interesting are and again new data that's coming out or a noise pollution data and traffic speed data and they, they turn out to be really indicative of change value and diminution obviously if a road speed starts to increase proximate to the property that will have outcome effects or you know or decrease right we've got heavier traffic in a given area i mean you can now see it we've been talking about building valuation but of course from an insurance perspective there is rebuild cost, which is mm-hmm. yeah, completely different. Are, are you also tracking that? Yes. Uh, yes, we are. One of them in the rebuild costs that gets often overlooked, but we've found a really good way of doing this, is uh, alternative accommodation. So I was talking to a, uh, an insurer yesterday morning, and um, she and I were discussing the challenges around exactly that. So they've, uh, they've got very good models for handling flood and um, remediation in the event of flood damage. But the cost of rehousing somebody while you repair the flood is one of those, okay, well, how much is it going to cost? So, well, what does the policy say? Do you have to have them in the uh, sort of st- equal standard accommodation? Mm. Or, you know, frankly, you're chucking them in a travel lodge. No, 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 they can't do that. Got it. Policy says must be equal or greater. And I said, all right, then. So you need a map of all of the things that are rentable, that are proximate to all the things you've insured, and a running tally of how much it's going to cost to rent that in the event of a flood event. Because it's stuff like that that we're getting down into with the, the, the rebuild costs. So it's not just the bricks or the cost of local builders or the cost of planning or the cost of having to deal with the local authority to get the rebuild done. It's also, well, what am I going to do with the person when I'm doing it? It's a really sort of, yeah, interesting, well, additional living expenses, they call it, in the, in the mm-hmm. U.S. And I mean, just another one of the differences between the U.K. and the U.S. is that it seems like in the U.K. now insurers are – it's less demanding on their policyholders to define the rebuild cost. I mean, in the US, you actually have to accept that or agree it as part of the policy. But I've noticed actually getting quotes from property insurers in the UK, in some cases, they they don't ever even ask for it. They, they will basically do that, do that work themselves mm. as opposed to the policyholders. So I guess that's also increases the value of what you're offering to your clients. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The challenge that we've seen is that a number of the insurers had been using current valuation of a property as a proxy. And it's true, uh, except in circumstances where it isn't. And where it isn't, it can be really expensive. So if a property, for example, let's imagine there's a £100,000 uh, mid-terraced unit um, that is catastrophically damaged. The problem is it's the asymmetric cost of the things next to it. So if we, you would argue, look, I, 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 the thing's worth 100K, so I'll cover it for 100. Yeah, but you've got 200,000 pounds worth of damage in a 100,000 pound house if it's sitting in between two other houses. Uh, the ones abutting it, can they sue you for diminution of their value as a result of you not repairing the thing in the middle? So it's all that kind of interlaced challenge around the inappropriate knowledge of what is it that I've insured and really where's my where's my true liability and frankly the value of the thing is not the same as what is the cost of the thing mm. if it's if it is reduced to rubble its value is not minus it could be minus some number of hundreds of thousands of pounds so it's trying to figure out what the you know area-based loss would be what is the impact on the things abutting it we need to know what the value of those things are and figure it out from there Back to your kitchen analogy again. I mean, you need some you need some uh, 
well-trained, sophisticated chefs in the kitchen. This is not somebody flipping burgers at McDonald's that can pump <laughs> out the data, is it? Uh, so I just want to talk about something else, Mark. You mentioned before that you're helping the Bank of England. That sounds maybe a generous gesture at these times, but... Uh, well, I'm charging you- them for the help. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> can you uh, talk a bit about what that is? We are a contract supplier with the BOE, and what we are looking at is... Um, uh, changes in, in valuation over populace. So it's what things are out there that are buildings and what are those things worth? And then they would be able to use that data in the macroprudential reports. If it, it's not a secret that the macroprudential report that came out in April was quoting the analysis that we had done with the BOE. At a high level, that's what we're doing. Um, when we're down in the rushes, it's a bit more than that, but that's their IP, not mine. And great endorsement there for you. Uh, and then I just wanted to switch a little bit about your experience of building the business was fascinating to know how people have, have gone through that. So I, I think you were self-funded up until 2017, then you brought in uh, three million pounds of investment from CLS. But you know, what advice would you give to other people who, you know, as you were back in, in sort of 2012, looking to build a business, you know, that balance between how much do you try and do on your own, are you going to move more slowly uh, versus you know, finding third-party capital to help you support the growth of the business? So I would say there's three steps that we, we would go through in a, in a business foundation, or if I was advising somebody on how to do it. The first one is use a lean canvas model. It's effectively a, a one-page thing that you use to describe to yourself what you want to do. And that's a really uh, a truthful moment that tells you that the thing you're trying to do is useful. Then the second step is, can I get it into minimum viable product without requiring external capital? Technology is cheap these days, so it's not, uh, that shouldn't be a barrier to, to getting something up and running. Uh, people have time, right? There are, there are more people who are willing to give you time right now as it happens. So uh, sweat equity is available. You just got to find the right partner to say, I've got an idea. Could you help me build this thing through? But once you have a simple working model, and, and I'm netting on a number of companies, and one of them is an ethical investment company, and we've got us to the stage where it's one pound in, is two pounds out. And that was a, an MVP that took us a year and change to get to it. But once you get to that point, you then go, okay, now I need external capital. External capital is, is fuel. It shouldn't be engineering cover. It's not to help you build necessarily. It's to help you fly off the end of the runway and take off. Um, it helps if the person who's investing or the people who are investing are in a, an industry that's side by side with you. And I would argue that the reason is you need somebody to go and cry at their desk when it doesn't look like it's working at some point, which it will. So you need to go and talk to an expert. And it's better if your investor is also an expert. I would advocate anybody to think about the smart money aspect of it. Money isn't difficult to get hold of. Smart money is. We were amazingly lucky with CLS. And the availability of their team to help at any point in time that we needed, that's, that, that was worth more than the money. Mm-hmm. No, it's very interesting. So smart money, meaning they've got the, they can help you. They've got the advisory work. You get a sort of almost free advice with, along with the money as well. And, and that, Mark, just that, to make sure I understood properly that point about one pound in, two pounds out, is that you're saying that essentially you've proved a business model, you've proved you can bring revenue in. So somebody investing one pound has got, a, you know, it's got some good clarity, they're going to get two pounds back, as opposed to it's at a very early stage. Yeah. But there are people who will do really early stage VC too. I mean, that, <clears throat> I'm not discounting it. Uh, you, usually that's angels. You're looking for high net worth or some, some sub or cash in. But the companies that required 50,000 pounds to get going or 100,000 to get going, 
what's the 100,000 for? If you've already got time, tin is cheap and you've got an idea, run with it anyway. You don't really need 100,000 pounds to get up and running. You're just, what you're actually asking for is a cushion so that you can leave the current job you're in and focus on this thing here. Well, either you're committed or you're not. Right? And people can work weekends in terms of getting a thing up and running. It's challenging if you're in a business and you, you can't legitimately sell the product that you're building on the side while being employed by somebody else. I do mm -hmm. get that, but you can get it to an MVP to go, I could sell this thing and somebody would buy it and it already works. That you can do before you leave your current job. If it's mentoring on whether you, whether you go into entrepreneurship or not, then figure out that the thing is going to be easy to sell by making it right. Don't try and find a, a way to raise money so that if it's difficult to sell, you've got some air cover because that's, that's the wrong approach. That's really helpful. Thanks for that. And then just you've mentioned in passing their technology, but what's your advice to people looking to find those technology partners earlier on? I mean, where, where's the sort of good places to look for people that are either looking to you know, join companies, provide support, you know, not, not being too expensive, but actually are going to be sort of flexible enough and fast, fast response enough for an early stage company? Well, get a good lawyer or a good accountant from the get-go because they've got plenty of good networks. You find a lawyer that, well, we were, again, we were extraordinarily lucky. I've worked with the same guy since 2006. He's at, um, Matt Sillett at Cannings Connerly, and I wouldn't do a deal without the guy. But Matt and another character called Damien Ryan, who's at um, BDO, talk to either of those two, because their networks are huge. Get it down to 15 seconds or 20 second pitch. Tell them, I'm going to do this thing. Do you know somebody who can help me do this thing? Because clearly the lawyer is going to want the work because they're going to put the deal together when you do the deal. And the... Uh, Corporate finance people are going to want to do it because they're going to go out and try and find you the corporate finance. So find a good lawyer and find a good accountant. And if you do those two things, the networks off that, the network effect of having good people working with you is phenomenal. Yeah, no, that's fantastic advice, actually. I mean, it's a part of the, you know, big part of what we do is that network and, and trying to do that in a digital world is getting... What are you? You've got a phenomenal network. If I was launching a business in the insurance space from scratch, I'd go to you first and say, do you think this thing's got legs and who do you think would be interested in it? That's exactly what you're for. Yeah, no, we certainly enjoy, enjoy that side of it. Uh, well, Mark, we've covered a lot there. I've asked you a lot of questions. Is there anything that we haven't spoken about that you'd like to just bring to, bring to our attention? I'm looking forward to seeing the people again. None of the people that we met when we were doing your, uh, your evenings. They were, that was phenomenal. I hope we all get back to that safely and soon. That's my closing remark. I miss our Tuesday evenings. Thank you for all your support. It's, yeah, I mean, I just, sadly, I fear we're not going to be all jammed into a nightclub in a railway arch, you know, shoulder to shoulder for another few months until you know, people sort of see some clarity into the end of where we are now. But mm -hmm. yeah, we're definitely missing that. And I think, I think from a technology point of view, the other thing we'll soon start to see emerging is more ways of sort of connecting and developing communities and relationships in a digital world yeah mm -hmm. and we're going to have to do that because we are just all sociable beings aren't we and as you said you know you learn a lot from people well mark that's been um it's been tremendous really enjoy getting an update on on what you're up to and then just finally is there anything else that we should be keeping an eye out for from when fresh in the next few months Always, <laughs> always. That's the point. We're, we're, we're a lean and agile group. Yeah, I, I, I would look at uh, where we're bringing out the combination of data and insurance as a product. So blocking things together. The valuation is taken off the um, AVPS, which we call our, our thing where we look at a building and tell you what it is and insure it so that you can lend on it. That's going gangbusters. So I, I just, we're, there's more stuff coming. Just watch. Excellent. Well, you know, congratulations on... on 
doing so well and you're doing so well in these difficult times and uh, it's been great to catch up yeah, and yeah hopefully we'll see each other face to face we've got less excuses we're only a few streets away from each other but i'll uh, wait from the rooftops how about that <laughs> <laughs> nice to speak to okay you. thanks mark Well, that was a lot of fun recording that and packed with insights. I really like that advice Mark gives for how to start up a business. And you can get the highlights written up on the website, London. Now, if you like the podcast, please do keep sharing them with friends and colleagues. Now, one of the easiest ways to do this, if you're listening, for example, on the iPhone to the Apple podcast, is if you look at the particular episode, you'll see a circle with three dots in it. If you click on that, that will take you to the option to be able to copy a link you may need to scroll down. But you can then send that direct to somebody or maybe you might even want to post about it. Thanks. It all helps a lot. Uh, and finally, don't forget, hang in there after this if you want to find out how Wenfresh got its name. Worth a listen. And of course, as always, you can find out what we're up to and more at the website and sign up for our newsletter. You know, you missed a question out. You never asked us why we called it Wenfresh. Well, I had a good crack at it. Did I get that wrong or is there more of a story behind that? No, you're right. Actually, we reverse engineered it. So we called it, we, we tell people we call it when fresh because it's data when it's fresh, but that's not why we call it when fresh. Okay. You could decide whether to distribute the story or not, but here's the truth. We sat down with Alan, my co-founder and said, How are we, what are we going to call the company? And he said, I'll, I'll write a program which will hit whose is, which is the directory of names of all the websites in the world. I said, and I'll just keep hitting it with combinations of English words. So we'll take two, because all the standard stuff like lemon is gone and apple is gone and all the kind of you know, simple stuff, fish is gone, whatever. We wrote code that picked up two words in the English language and just kept hitting the URL going, is that taken? Is that taken? And a couple of days later, we had a list of words that weren't taken, combination words. I mean, they were ridiculous. It was, you know, artificial elephants hadn't been taken. Oh, we don't want that. We're going down through the lessons. Oh my goodness, when fresh is available? Really? Surely a, like a food company or somebody should have picked it up. Nope. How much is that going to cost? 99 cents. You know, right? That's the best 99 cents I've ever spent. So yeah, when you go from many, many thousands of pounds to 99 cents, the truth of it was it was cheap. So that's why we, that's why we called it when fresh. That's the truth. And then afterwards we told people it's because it was data when it's fresh. That's not the real story. That's a, that's a great story. I, I, that app is still there. I might need to come back to you and, uh, and see if we can test it out. Yeah, sure. I can send you a list of all the two combination words that haven't been taken, although I suspect artificial elephant will be bought by somebody after this uh, podcast. Yeah, yeah. No, I like artificial elephant. That's like, <laughs> all sorts of businesses on the back of that. Yeah, that's a, that's a, <laughs> that's a great, great story, Mark. Thanks. <laughs>